Chapter Three of Essays and Literary Studies by Stephen Leacock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Literature and Education in America. It may be well to remind the reader at the outset of this article that Canada is in America. A Canadian writer may therefore with no great impropriety use the term American, for want of any other word, in reference to the literature and education of all the English-speaking people between the Rio Grande and the North Pole. There is, moreover, a certain warrant of fact for such a usage. Canadian literature, as far as there is such a thing, Canadian journalism, and the education and culture of the mass of the people of Canada, approximates more nearly to the type and standard of the United States than to those of Great Britain. Whatever accusations may be brought against the literature and education of the American Republic apply equally well, indeed very probably apply with even greater force, to the dominion of Canada. This modest apology may fittingly be offered before throwing stones at the glass house in which both the Canadians and the Americans proper dwell. Now it is a fact which had better be candidly confessed than indignantly denied, that up to the present time the contribution of America to the world's great literature has been disappointingly small. There are no doubt great exceptions. We number at least some of the world's great writers on this side of the Atlantic. American humor, in reputation at any rate, may claim equality if not preeminence. And the signs are not wanting, they are seen in the intense realism of our short stories and the concentrated power of our one-act plays, that we may some day come into our own. But in spite of this, the indictment holds good that up to the present we have fallen far short of what might have been properly expected of our civilization. I am quite aware that on this point I shall meet denial at the outset. I once broached this question of the relative inferiority of the literary output of America to that of the old world to a gentleman from Kentucky. He answered, I am afraid, sir, you are imperfectly acquainted with the work of our Kentucky poets. In the same way, a friend of mine from Maryland has assured me that immediately before the war that state had witnessed the most remarkable literary development recorded since the time of Plato. I am also credibly informed that the theological essayists of Prince Edward Island challenge comparison with those of any age. It is no doubt not the fault of the islanders that this challenge has not yet been accepted. But I am speaking here not of that literature which, though excellent in its way, is known only to the immediate locality which it adorns, but rather of those works of such eminent merit and such wide repute as to be properly classed among the literature of the world. To what a very small share of this, during the last hundred years of our history, can we in America lay claim? This phenomenon becomes all the more remarkable when we reflect upon the unparalleled advance that has been made in this country in the growth of population, in material resources, and in the purely mechanical side of progress. Counted after the fashion of the census-taker, which is our favorite American method of computation, we now number over a hundred million souls. It is some seventy years since our rising population equaled and passed that of the British Isles. A count of heads, dead and alive, during the century would show us more numerous than the British people by two to one. 
we erect buildings fifty stories high we lay a mile of railroad track in twenty-four hours the corn that we grow and the hogs that we raise are the despair of aristocratic europe and yet when it comes to the production of real literature the benighted people of the british isles can turn out more of it in a twelvemonth than our hundred million souls can manufacture in three decades for proof of this if proof is needed one has but to consider fairly and dispassionately the record of the century how few are the names of first rank that we can offer to the world in poetry longfellow bryant lowell whittier whitman with two or three others exhaust the list of historians of the front rank we have bancroft motley prescott and in a liberal sense francis parkman of novelists tale writers and essayists we can point with pride to irving poe cooper hawthorne emerson james and some few others as names that are known to the world of theologians we have colonel ingersoll mrs eddy and caroline nation but brilliant as many of these writers are can one for a moment compare them with the imposing list of the great names that adorn the annals of british literature in the nineteenth century wordsworth coleridge byron shelley keats tennyson browning swinburne are household names to every educated american novelists and tale writers such as dickens thackeray eliot meredith kipling and stevenson cannot be matched in our country how seldom are essayists and historians of the class of carlyle macaulay gibbon green huxley arnold morley and bryce produced among our hundred million of free and enlightened citizens these and a hundred other illustrious names spring to one's mind to illustrate the splendor of british literature in the nineteenth century but surely it is unfair to ourselves to elaborate needlessly so plain a point the candid reader will be fain to admit that the bulk of the valuable literature of the english-speaking peoples written within the last hundred years has been produced within the british isles nor can we plead in extenuation that inspiration has been lacking to us indeed the very contrary is the case what can be conceived more stimulating to the poetic imagination than the advance of american civilization into the broad plains of the mississippi and the saskatchewan the passage of the unknown mountains and the descent of the treasure-seekers upon the el dorado of the coast what finer background for literature than the silent untravelled forests and the broad rivers moving to unknown seas in older countries the landscape is known and circumscribed parish church and village and highway succeed one another in endless alternation there is nothing to discover no untraversed country to penetrate there is no mystery beyond thus if the old world is rich in history rich in associations that render the simple compass of a village green a sacred spot as the battleground of long ago so too is the new world rich in the charm and mystery of the unknown and in the lofty stimulus that comes from the unbroken silence of the primeval forest it was within the darkness of ancient woods that the spirits were first conceived in the imagination of mankind and that literature had its birth a milton or a bunyan that could dream dreams and see visions within the prosaic streets of an english country town would such a man have found no inspiration could he have stood at night where the wind roars among the pine forests of the peace 
or where the cold lights of the aurora illumine the endless desolation of the north? But alas, the Miltons and the Bunyans are not among us. The aspect of primeval nature does not call to our minds the vision of unseen powers riding upon the midnight blast. To us the midnight blast represents an enormous quantity of horsepower going to waste. The primeval forest is a first-class site for a sawmill, and the leaping cataract tempts us to erect a red-brick hydroelectric establishment on its banks and make it leap to some purpose. The fact of the matter is that despite our appalling numerical growth and mechanical progress, despite the admirable physical appliances offered by our fountain pens, our pulpwood paper, and our linotype press, the progress of literature in the general diffusion of literary appreciation on this continent is not commensurate with the other aspects of our social growth. Our ordinary citizen in America is not a literary person. He has but little instinct towards letters, a very restricted estimation of literature as an art, and neither envy nor admiration for those who cultivate it. A book for him means a thing by which the strain on the head is relieved after a serious business of the day, and belongs in the same general category as a burlesque show or a concertina solo. General information means a general knowledge of the results of the last election, and philosophical speculation is represented by speculation upon the future of the Democratic Party. Education is synonymous with ability to understand the stock exchange page of the morning paper, and culture means a silk hat and the habit of sleeping in pajamas. Not the least striking feature in the literary sterility of America is the fact that we are, at any rate as measured by any mechanical standard, a very highly educated people. If education can beget literature, it is here in America that the art of letters should most chiefly flourish. In no country in the world is more time, more thought, and more money spent upon education than in America. School books pour from our presses in tons. Manuals are prepared by the million, for use either with or without a teacher. Manuals for the deaf, manuals for the dumb, manuals for the deficient, for the half-deficient, for the three-quarters deficient, manuals of hygiene for the feeble, and manuals of temperance for the drunk. Instruction can be had orally, vocally, verbally, by correspondence or by mental treatment. Twelve million of our children are at school. The most skillful examiners apply to them every examination that human cruelty can invent or human fortitude can endure. In higher education alone, 35,000 professors lecture unceasingly to 300,000 students. Surely so vast and complicated a machine might be expected to turn out scholars, poets, and men of letters such as the world has never seen before. Yet it is surprising that the same unliterary, anti-literary tendency that is seen throughout our whole social environment manifests itself also in the peculiar and distorted form given in our higher education, and in the singular barrenness of its results. There can be no greater contrast than that offered by the system of education in Great Britain, broad and almost planless in its outline, yet admirable in its results, and the carefully planned and organized higher education of America. The one, in some indefinable way, fosters, promotes, and develops the true instinct of literature. 
it puts a premium upon genius it singles out originality and mental power and accentuates natural inequality caring less for the commonplace achievements of the many than for the transcendent merit of the few the other system absurdly attempts to reduce the whole range of higher attainment to the measured and organized grinding of a mill it undertakes to classify ability and to measure intellectual progress with a yard measure and to turn out in its graduates a standardized article similar to steel rails or structural beams with interchangeable parts in their brains and all of them purchasable in the market at the standard price the root of the matter and its essential bearing upon the question of literary development in general is that the two systems of education take their start from two entirely opposite points of view the older view of education which is rapidly passing away in america but which is still dominant in the great universities of england aimed at a wide and humane culture of the intellect it regarded the various departments of learning as forming essentially a unity some pursuit of each being necessary to the intelligent comprehension of the whole and a reasonable grasp of the whole being necessary to the appreciation of each it is true that the system followed in endeavouring to realise this ideal took as its basis the literature of greece and rome but this was rather made the starting point for a general knowledge of the literature the history and the philosophy of all ages than regarded as offering in itself the final goal of education now our american system pursues a different path it breaks up the field of knowledge into many departments subdivides these into special branches and sections and calls upon the scholar to devote himself to a microscopic activity in some part of a section of a branch of a department of the general field of learning this specialized system of education that we pursue does not of course begin at once any system of training must naturally first devote itself to the acquiring of a rudimentary knowledge of such elementary things as reading spelling and the humbler aspects of mathematics but the further the american student proceeds the more this tendency to specialization asserts itself when he enters upon what are called postgraduate studies he is expected to become altogether a specialist devoting his whole mind to the study of the left foot of the garden frog or to the use of the ablative in tacitus or to the history of the first half hour of the reformation as he continues on his upward way the air about him gets rarer and rarer his path becomes more and more solitary until he reaches and encamps upon his own little pinnacle of refined knowledge staring at his feet and ignorant of the world about him the past behind him and the future before him at the end of his labors he publishes a useless little pamphlet called his thesis which is new in the sense that nobody ever wrote it before and erudite in the sense that nobody will ever read it meantime the american student's ignorance of all things except his own part of his own subject has grown colossal the unused parts of his intellect have ossified his interest in general literature his power of original thought indeed his wish to think at all is far less than it was in the second year of his undergraduate course more than all that his interestingness to other people has completely departed even with his fellow-scholars so called 
he can find no common ground of intellectual intercourse. If three men sit down together, and one is a philologist, the second a numismatist, and the third a subsection of a conchologist, what can they find to talk about? I have had occasion in various capacities to see something of the working of this system of the higher learning. Some years ago I resided for a month or two with a group of men who were specialists of the type described, most of them in pursuit of their degree of doctor of philosophy, some of them, easily distinguished by their air of complete vacuity, already in possession of it. The first night I dined with them, I addressed to the man opposite me some harmless question about a recent book that I thought of general interest. I don't know anything about that, he answered. I'm in sociology. There was nothing to do but to beg his pardon, and to apologize for not having noticed it. Another of these same men was studying classics on the same plan. He was engaged in composing a doctor's thesis on the genitive of value in Plautus. For eighteen months past he had read nothing but Plautus. The manner of his reading was as follows. First he read Plautus all through, and picked out all the verbs of estimating, followed by the genitive, then he read it again and picked out the verbs of reckoning, then the verbs of wishing, praying, cursing, and so on. Of all these he made lists, and grouped them into little things called tables of relative frequency, which, when completed, were about as interesting, about as useful, and about as easy to compile as the list of wholesale prices of sugar at New Orleans. Yet this man's thesis was admittedly the best in his year, and it was considered by his instructors that had he not died immediately after graduation, he would have lived to publish some of the most daring speculations on the genitive of value in Plautus that the world has ever seen. I do not here mean to imply that all our scholars of this type die, or even that they ought to die, immediately after graduation. Many of them remain alive for years, though their utility has of course largely departed after their thesis is complete. Still they do and can remain alive. If kept in a dry atmosphere, and not exposed to the light, they may remain in an almost perfect state of preservation for years after finishing their doctor's thesis. I remember once seeing a specimen of this kind enter into a country post-office store, get his letters, and make a few purchases, closely scrutinized by the rural occupants. When he had gone out, the postmaster turned to a friend, with the triumphant air of a man who has information in reserve, and said, "'Now wouldn't you think, to look at him, that man was a didn't fool?' "'Certainly would,' said the friend, slowly nodding his head. "'Well, he isn't,' said the postmaster emphatically. "'He's a doctor of philosophy.' but the distinction was too subtle for most of the auditors. In passing these strictures upon our American system of higher education, I do not wish to be misunderstood. One must, of course, admit a certain amount of specialization in study. It is quite reasonable that a young man with a particular aptitude or inclination towards modern languages, or classical literature, or political economy, should devote himself particularly to that field but what I protest against is the idea that each of these studies is apt with us to be regarded as wholly exclusive of the others, and that the moment a man becomes a student of German literature, 
he should lose all interest in general history and philosophy, and be content to remain as ignorant of political economy or jurisprudence as a plumber. The price of liberty, it has been finely said, is eternal vigilance, and I think one may say that the price of real intellectual progress is eternal alertness, an increasing and growing interest in all great branches of human knowledge. Art is notoriously long, and life is infamously short. We cannot know everything. But we can at least pursue the ideal of knowing the greatest things in all branches of knowledge, something at least of the great masters of literature, something of the best of the world's philosophy, and something of its political conduct and structure. It is but little that the student can ever know, but we can at least see that the little is wisely distributed. And here perhaps it is necessary to make a further qualification to this antagonism of the principle of specialization. I quite admit its force and purpose as applied to such things as natural science and medicine. These are branches capable of isolation from the humanities in general, and in them progress is not dependent on the width of general culture. Here it is necessary that a certain portion of the learned world should isolate themselves from mankind, immure themselves in laboratories, testing, dissecting, weighing, probing, boiling, mixing and cooking to their heart's content. It is necessary for the world's work that they should do so. In any case, this is real research work done by real specialists after their education, and not as their education. Of this work, the so-called researches of the graduate student, who spends three years in writing a thesis on John Milton's godmother, is a mere parody. Nor is it to be thought that this postgraduate work upon the preparation of a thesis, this so-called original scholarship, is difficult. It is pretentious, plausible, esoteric, cryptographic, occult, if you will, but difficult it is not. It is of course laborious, it takes time, but the amount of intellect called for in the majority of these elaborate compilations is about the same, or rather less, than that involved in posting the day-book in a village grocery. The larger part of it is on the level with the ordinary routine clerical duties performed by a young lady stenographer for ten dollars a week. One must also quite readily admit that just as there is false and real research, so too is there such a thing as false and make-believe general education. Education, I allow, can be made so broad that it gets thin, so extensive that it must be shallow. The educated mind of this type becomes so wide that it appears quite flat. Such is the education of the drawing-room conversationalist. Thus a man may acquire no little reputation as a classical scholar by constant and casual reference to Plato or Diderus Siculus without in reality having studied anything more arduous than the home study circle of his weekly paper. Yet even such a man, pitiable though he is, may perhaps be viewed with a more indulgent eye than the ossified specialist. It is, of course, not to be denied that there is even in the field of the humanities a certain amount of investigation to be done, of research work, if one will, of a highly specialized character. But this is work that can best be done not by way of an educational training, for its effect is usually the reverse of educational, but as a special labor performed for its own sake, 
as the life-work of a trained scholar, not as the examination requirement of a prospective candidate. The pretentious claim made by so many of our universities that the thesis presented for the doctor's degree must represent a distinct contribution to human knowledge will not stand examination. Distinct contributions to human knowledge are not so easily or so mechanically achieved. Nor should it be thought either that, even where an elaborate and painstaking piece of research has been carried on by a trained scholar, such an achievement should carry with it any recognition of a very high order. It is useful and meritorious, no doubt, but the esteem in which it is held in the academic world in America indicates an entirely distorted point of view. Our American process of research has led to an absurd admiration of the mere collection of facts, extremely useful things in their way, but in point of literary eminence, standing in the same class as the twelfth census of the United States, or the statistical abstract of the United Kingdom. So it has come to pass that the bulk of our college-made books are little more than collections of material, out of which in the hands of a properly gifted person a book might be made. In our book-making in America, our serious book-making, I mean, the whole art of presentation, the thing that ought to be the very essence of literature, is sadly neglected. A fact, as Lord Bryce once said in addressing the assembled historians of America, is an excellent thing, and you must have facts to write about. But you should realize that even a fact before it is ready for presentation must be cut and polished like a diamond. You need not be afraid to be flippant, said the same eminent authority, but you ought to have a horror of being dull. Unfortunately, our American college-bred authors cannot be flippant if they try. It is at best but the lumbering playfulness of the elephant, humping his heavy posteriors in the air and wiggling his little tail in the vain attempt to be a lamb. The head and front of the indictment thus presented against American scholarship is seen in its results. It is not making scholars in the highest sense of the term. It is not encouraging a true culture. It is not aiding in the creation of real literature. The whole bias of it is contrary to the development of the highest intellectual power. It sets a man of genius to a drudging task, suitable to the capacities of third-class clerk, substitutes the machine-made pedant for the man of letters, puts a premium on painstaking dullness, and breaks down genius, inspiration, and originality in the grinding routine of the college treadmill. Here and there, as is only natural, conspicuous exceptions appear in the academic world of America. A New England professor has invested the dry subject of government with a charm that is only equaled by the masterly comprehensiveness of his treatment. A Massachusetts philosopher held for a lifetime the ear of the educated world, and an American professor has proved that even so abstruse a subject as the history of political philosophy can be presented in a form at once powerful and fascinating. But even the existence of these brilliant exceptions to the general rule cannot invalidate the proposition that the effect of our American method upon the cycle of higher studies is depressing in the extreme. History is dwindling into fact-lore, and is becoming the science of the almanac. Economics is being buried alive in statistics, and is degenerating into the science of the census.
literature is stifled by philology, and is little better than the science of the lexicographer. Nor is it only in the higher ranges of education and bookmaking that the same abiding absence of general literary spirit is manifest in American life. For below, or at least parallel with the universities, we have the equally notable case of our American newspapers and journals. In nearly all of these, the art of writing is relegated entirely to the background. Our American newspapers and journals, with certain notable and honorable exceptions, are not written upwards, so to speak, as if seeking to attain the ideal of an elevated literary excellence, but downward, so as to catch the ear and capture the money of the crowd. Here obtrudes himself the everlasting American man with the dinner pail, admirable as a political and industrial institution, but despicable as the touchstone of a national literature. Our newspapers must be written down to his level. Our poetry must be put in a form that he can understand. Our sonnets must be tuned to suit his ear. Our editorials must speak his own tongue. Otherwise he will not spend his magical one cent, and our newspaper cannot circulate. Hence it is that the bulk of our current journalistic literature is strictly a one-cent literature. This is the situation that has evolved that weird being called the American reporter, tireless in his activity, omnipresent, omnivorous, and omni-ignorant. He is out looking for facts, but of the art of presenting them with either accuracy or attraction, he is completely innocent. He has just enough knowledge of shorthand to be able completely to mystify himself, and in deciphering his notes of events, speeches, and occurrences, to fall back upon his general education would be like falling back upon a cucumber frame. I cannot do better to illustrate the amount of literary power possessed by the American reporter than to take an actual illustration, or at any rate one that is as good as actual. I will take a selection from President Lincoln's second inaugural address, and will present it at first as Lincoln is known to have written it, and secondly, as the Washington reporters of the day are certain to have reported it. Here is the original. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may soon pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's two hundred and fifty years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid with another drawn with the sword, as was said three thousand years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Here is the reproduction of the above at the hands of the American reporter, piecing out his meagre knowledge of stenography by the use of his still more meagre literary ability. Mr. Lincoln then spoke at some length upon the general subject of prayer. He said that prayer was fond and foolish, but that war would scourge it out. War was a nightly scourge. It would pile up two hundred and fifty million dollars of unpaid bonds. He recommended the lash as the most appropriate penalty, and concluded by expressing his opinion that the judgments of the Lord were altogether ridiculous. The ultimate psychology of this decided absence of literary power in our general intellectual development would be difficult to appreciate. 
it may be that the methods adopted in our education are a consequence rather than a cause and it may well be also that even if our educative system is a contributory factor other causes of great potency are operative at the same time one of these no doubt is found in the distinct bias of our whole american life towards commercialism the vastly greater number of us in america have always been under the shameful necessity of earning our own living this has colored all our thinking with the yellow tinge of the dollar social and intellectual values necessarily undergo a peculiar readjustment among a people to whom individually the main chance is necessarily everything thus it is that with us everything tends to find itself upon a business basis organization and business methods are obtruded everywhere public enthusiasm is replaced by the manufactured hysteria of the convention the old-time college president such as the one of harvard who lifted up his voice in prayer in the twilight of a summer evening over the rebels that were to move on bunker hill that night is replaced by the modern business president alert and brutal in his methods and himself living only on sufferance after the age of forty years a good clergyman with us must be a hustler the only missionary we care for is an advertiser and even the undertaker must send us a christmas calendar if he desires to retain our custom everything with us is run on business lines from a primary election to a prayer meeting thus business and the business code and business principles become everything smartness is the quality most desired pecuniary success the goal to be achieved hence all less tangible and provable forms of human merit and less tangible aspirations of the human mind are rudely shouldered aside by business ability and commercial success there follows the apotheosis of the business man he is elevated to the post of national hero his most stupid utterances are taken down by the american reporter through the prism of whose intellect they are refracted with a double brilliance and inscribed at large in the pages of the one-cent press the man who organizes a soap and glue company is called a nation-builder a person who can borrow enough money to launch a distillers association is named an empire-maker and the man who remains in business until he is seventy-five without getting into the penitentiary is designated a grand old man but it may well be that there is a reason for our literary inferiority lying deeper still than the commercial environment and the existence of an erroneous educational ideal which are but things of the surface it is possible that after all literature and progress happiness and equality are antithetical terms certain it is that the world's greatest literature has arisen in the darkest hours of its history more than one of the masterpieces of the past were written in a dungeon it is perhaps conceivable that literature has arisen in the past mainly on the basis of the inequalities the sufferings and the misery of the common lot that has led humanity to seek in the concepts of the imagination the happiness that seemed denied by the stern environment of reality thus perhaps american civilization with its public school and the dead level of its elementary instruction with its simple code of republicanism and its ignorance of the glamour and mystery of monarchy 
with its bread and work for all, and its universal hope of the betterment of personal fortune, contains in itself an atmosphere in which the flower of literature cannot live. It is at least conceivable that this flower blossoms most beautifully in the dark places of the world, among that complex of tyranny and heroism, of inexplicable cruelty and sublime suffering that is called history. Perhaps this literary sterility of America is but the mark of the new era that is to come not to America alone, but to the whole of our Western civilization, the era in which humanity, fed to satiety and housed and warmed to the point of somnolence, with its wars abolished and its cares removed, may find that it has lost from among it that supreme gift of literary inspiration, which was the comforter of its darker ages. End of chapter 3